0: Hello, this is Chuk, and on today's episode, we have Dr. Pierre. Dr. Kelsey Pierre is an infectious disease specialist and addiction medicine specialist, and our practice includes caring for patients with blood infectious diseases and history of uh, addiction and to their substances. So, over to Dr. Pierre and
1: All the way to, I am now, I don't have housing, I have destroying relationships that I've had with my family my children no longer talk to me. I don't, I can't keep a dog for long than a couple of days. Perhaps I have legal involvement. Maybe I have different infections, you know, whether that's HIV, hepatitis C, heart infections. Um, so many things are happening and you know it is because of your drug seeking behavior, but you can't stop. Um, the compulsion part of it is both behavior, right? Like behavior is learned and people like to stay in the habit of things that they're doing. When you listen to all those self-talk things you hear like oh habit takes at least 30 days to form right like we like to stay in the behavior that we're doing um and so it's very behavioral it's comfortable there especially by the time you get to a severe use disorder like your behavior is just ingrained it's comfortable there um and part of the way that the behavior gets ingrained uncomfortable there is because with an addiction your frontal lobe here where we make all of our good executive decisions here where we're able to say okay if i don't do this right now then tomorrow I will get a reward. Um, Or next year, I'll be able to buy a house if I don't, if I stop, you know, eating out. And if I stop taking vacations, then I'll be able to save up money. So that good executive decision-making happens here. And when we develop compulsive behaviors, this part of the brain gets shut down, kind of turned off. And so damaged in a way, but fortunately, when it comes to behavior, if you're changing your behavior, then you can rewire and reawake those neurons, those brain cells, and rebuild your frontal lobe and so that's why you know it's not like it's a lost cause if someone has a severe um, use disorder if someone has an addiction it is something that we can try to help them change and try to help them rebuild their brain and then you get people who yeah i have been sober for 30 40 years um so that's kind of just an overview of what addiction is in general chronic relapsing compulsive behavior even though you're having adverse um, consequences from your using, and that could go from. To in theory, you can sort of be addicted uh, to anything, right? Um, some of us have very mild sort of addictions that don't affect our life, and so you know we kind of just count them as habits or behaviors. You know, that's the maybe the person who has three cups of coffee a day, and if they don't have a cup of coffee, they're like lashing out at their co-workers or. You know, irritated with their husband or their wife. Um, or people who say I can't function in the morning. Don't talk to me. That's maybe you know a little bit of a high risk use of coffee. Um, and then you have your behavioral addiction. So that comes down to things like internet gaming, gambling, sex, which are all things that affect that dopamine system, and it can get disordered. Um, and you can be addicted to those things too, right? You can develop harmful consequences from those things, but your brain is so wired or miswired that you keep your compulsively doing that behavior. Thoughts, questions?
0: Yeah, if you have a question, just raise a hand and I'll ask, or you can ask. Um, um, so what what kind of patients do you see? Do you see patients that are primarily addicted to, to drugs or to other things?
1: Okay, so I primarily see um, addictions to drugs. So um, like painkillers, heroin, fentanyl, opiates, masks. Um, And then drugs like, you know, tobacco, nicotine, smoking as well, or Kratom or cannabis, weed. I mostly see um, those kind of addictions. Part of it is because of the fact that um, those the consequences from those kind of addictions can come on really fast. Right. That's one. Two, I think we have a lot more information in kind of the world about those types of addictions And not so much about the behavioral addictions, which are a lot more kind of like hush hush and, you know, kind of stigmatized as well in families. Um, And then three, because with those kinds of addictions, we have medications that can actually help. Um, Whereas with your behavioral addictions, those fall very significantly under um, psychotherapy. So psychiatry services, um, and I am not a psychiatrist. Okay.
0: Um, so wh- where will we uh, classify alcohol and nicotine addiction? Is that behavioral or more of a substance?
1: Substance. Alcohol is substance, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. yeah. Alcohol is one of the hardest ones because of how we have... Well, it's legalized, right? You just you only had prohibition for that sh- short period of time. But alcohol is very legal. Um, and I think that makes it one of the hardest ones to treat because in some ways, if you're addicted to one of the illegal substances... You kind of have to work a little bit to go find it and to get it, right? So if you want to change your behaviors, you can change the people you hang out with, delete numbers, like come off social media, like don't go back to the same places where you got it. But with alcohol, that's really hard because you could buy it kind of everywhere, grocery store, pharmacy, gas station. Um, and so your triggers are very, very significant, very severe and kind of always in your face. And that's really hard. Um, yeah. It's, it's very hard. Oh, okay, can I just ask a quick question? Sorry, another so one's like, what about food addiction? Food addiction, yeah. Food addiction is, I think that one currently falls much more under the behavioral type, uh, like subset, subset of addictions rather than the substance type. But then um, we are finding that with the way that a lot of foods, particularly like snack foods, you know, sodas and cakes and those sorts of things that are mass manufactured, um... Those things are chemically made now to produce the highest amount of dopamine spikes so that feeds back and makes you want more. Um, and so because of the characteristics of how manufactured foods are, food addiction is very one much one that kind of straddles the line where it's like, are we making this into a substance even though there is a heavy behavioral component as well? That was a really good question, actually. Okay. Um,
0: thanks for that, Kelsey. I think no, so is on. No, so you can go ahead and ask a question. Great. Uh Thanks, Dr. Kelsey, for taking the time. Um, uh, you mentioned the coffee and, you know, uh, coffee can, can be from addiction. Is, is, is there a downside? What's a moderate? And I think similar to alcohol, what would you say is sort of a, the size when you should be watching out on, okay, this is going beyond, say, a social drink or moderate drinker uh, uh, component. And then the sort of thing, you know, I didn't do to it. I know you say a psychotherapist, but when you have friends and, Love haunts, and maybe you see in your science. How do you kind of, from what you're seeing and your experience, approach that?
1: Okay, all right. So, it's a really good question. When I say that yes, coffee and caffeine is kind of an addiction as well, part of that just comes from physical dependence, right? So, physical dependence is ca- is the first part of any addiction kind of forming, where your body becomes accustomed to something being there. Now, physical dependence is how we are all built, right? If you wake up in the morning and you eat breakfast at 7 a.m. every day. And then for some reason 7 a.m today you couldn't eat breakfast your body is going to be like hey where's my breakfast i'm hungry your belly's growling you feel kind of weak that's physical dependence right um and so the same thing happens with a lot of different things so your caffeine your alcohol all of your substances you get physically dependent first right um the difference comes from caffeine does not produce the as high of a dopaminergic spike when we ingest it right so you're not getting as much kind of neuro neurological dependence on it and then also the um the severity of the physical dependence is not as bad yeah you feel crummy if you don't have coffee today but like tomorrow you're fine you're not getting sicker and sicker and sicker right um so like a caffeine addiction technically doesn't exist right because there's not really any bad consequences that where people are like running out and you know stealing from other people for coffee but um i use that as, as an example because i think it helps us to see how easy it is to um be addicted to something right like all of us started maybe drinking coffee not because we like one not because coffee is that great like it's okay but it's not like the best thing any of us has ever had ever um but usually a friend introduced it to you. You had an exam. You need to stay up all night for a party. Something like that, right? Like it just snuck into your life. The next thing you know, you drink coffee every day. Um, and you have a similar thing as well. So alcohol is a good one that very much relates to the coffee, right? Like alcohol, I don't know really many people who are like, yeah, I'm definitely going to go try beer, right? You kind of just get into it in your life, right? You you grow into it. 16, 17, 18, 21, whatever age. And it might even be a thing. Your parents might have thrown you a party when you got to the age of drinking, right? And handed you your first beer and uncle or cousin. Um, but alcohol does create more of that dopamine spike. And so if you keep ingesting it, then you're going to have those brain changes kind of seeking that dopamine spike again and again. And how much is... Um, so like I said before, right? The, the definition of an addiction... Is compulsive behavior, and so when we um, when we think about compulsive behaviors, then that's when we think about okay, it has this become a problem? Right? Is this person needing to drink every day? And so in yourself, that can look like okay, why is it that every time I walk into the house, I can't see my kids? I can't even hear my wife say a sentence or my husband say a sentence right before i have a beer or before i you know pour a scotch or something like that right or you're sitting at work and you're like jesus it's only 2 p.m i mean i could take a drink early like what happened or like some people got really caught up with that in the pandemic right because they were already drinking kind of every day and then in the pandemic they are at home and so what started out as like a 6 p.m. drink after work was 5 p.m. and then 4 p.m. and then 3 p.m., right? It's a compulsion. You feel like you have to have it to function. And then things spiral from there, right? Like how is the alcohol affecting your life? Are you the person who, if you go to the grocery store, you have to get alcohol. Like you're always making sure, okay, do I do I have enough? Do I have enough vodka? Like how much, you know, I don't run out. Do you make sure you don't run out, right? You're always planning your life about not running out. Um, and if you do run out, you're kind of willing to do everything. To get it. Right. If you are here in like North Carolina and you know that like on Sundays, but for some reason you couldn't re out on a Saturday, um, then on a Sunday, you're looking to go by your brother, your sister, a friend, because, you know, pro- they probably have an alcohol cabinet. They'll probably have. I'm going to go hang out with that guy. Right. Like you're going to make excuses in order to get it. You're going to make sure that you, you all of the things that you are doing are focused on kind of getting your alcohol. If it's not there, you have a problem. Then, too, if you don't have it, you're getting physically sick. So you're nauseous, you're vomiting, you're throwing up, you're seeing things, mm-hmm. you're tremoring. Um, if you don't have the alcohol, that's a really good sign um, that, hey, your consumption is uh, high. Um, and so your uh, standard drink is about um, 0.6 uh, ounces 6 ounces of pure alcohol. And... um. That you have to have less than seven in a week, um, to kind of be a normal drinker by definition. So oh. that can be a ballpark for you, right? That ballpark is not the be-all and end-all and the only definition. Like you could say, "Oh, I only have six, so I'm good." Because if in having that six standard drinks a week, right, you are falling out with your family you are too drunk that you miss a couple days of work in that six, then that's still problematic adverse consequences at that six. And so um, that still counts uh, as an addiction. So in other words, a person could be toying with alcohol all his life and not necessarily addicted. Yeah, Um, because if that person has enough control to not develop any of your adverse consequences, then that person kind of just remains in that category of high-risk drinking, right? Um, What's more, again, why alcohol sometimes can be so hard to treat is because alcohol is so everywhere. Um, You have all those people who you meet and then they're like, oh yeah, I hate my dad. Why? He's a functional alcoholic. He's a terrible guy, right? Um, And that functional alcoholic, so that's, that's... It's very much a, it's kind of a misnomer, I think, because a functional alcoholic really is just a person who happens to have a lot of resources sometimes, right? Functional alcoholic is a person who happens to have a job where maybe they're in a little bit of a senior position, maybe they own the job, maybe they work from home a lot, so they're not getting feedback on consequences of like losing their job all the time, or maybe their husband or wife kind of like supports them, makes excuses for them, um, or takes care of them, right? Um, And so the line between like high-risk drinking and kind of what alcoholism is, is a little blurry sometimes and can just depend on what resources and supports the person has.
0: All right, great. Um, so I was wondering, you know, the question about someone trying with alcohol all their lives and, you know, I think is is part of recognizing the illness because this is a disease, right? It's not like, you know, this substance use disorder. Um, is, is insight a big part on the person's part of knowing that he or she has an illness going going on rather than, you know, this is just my life. I'm fine with it, but not knowing that they actually have an ongoing illness.
1: Yes. Insight and denial are huge parts, right? People who have less severe problems or are at that level of like high risk drinking, those people have insight and they aren't denying what's happening to themselves. They can say, oh my goodness, like. I overdid yesterday and I blacked out and I have no idea what happened and somebody told me I said something crazy or did something crazy and that's really not good. So I'm not gonna get myself back there again. They still have control over their behavior and so that means that this, they, they have that insight. They're not in denial. So having insight, very much less severe disease or you know, in the highest drinking category. Not having insight and then also being in very much a state of denial, probably much more in the severe category. I think I see your hand. Helen. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Hi. Um, sorry, thank you so much for the time, right? Um, I was just wondering, I know that I have heard it's quite difficult to kind of um get people that have certain addictions, right, to come to that realization that they have it. But is that a way we can support such people? And maybe I know, like you said, there is that denial in certain situations, but is there a way to kind of
0: support to help the person to get to that realization or even you know
1: of try to get the person's kind of get certain kind of help or the help that they need to get them out of that situation okay so i think there's kind of two schools of thought on that in that you know they're very old school is like well they gotta hit rock bottom and like that's it i'm not even gonna try i'm not stepping in when they get to whatever their worst is they'll decide to get better and then you also have the school of thought that says well i think that we should at least plant a seed and we should try and so For me, I think I'm a little bit more on the side of, I want to support you and I want to plant a seed. But I always say that with the caveat that you need to make sure that as the person who is supporting someone who has this problem, that you are not enabling this problem, right? So your boundaries about what your support looks like has to be very clear. So for example, if the person is so far down, right, that um, maybe they are unhoused now. So you could say your support is that, okay, If you can agree that uh, you will be sober, right? You will not drink. I will touch you at home. I will not keep alcohol in the house, those sorts of things, then you can live here, right? That's good and that's helpful, right? As the person tries to make change, but you have to make sure that your boundary is there and you're not just letting them slide and enabling them as in like, okay, you could stay with me. And then when they step outside of the parameters that you set, you're like, he's trying. No, they have to kind of, you know, experience the consequences as well. And so... I think that that's a very difficult balance for everyone to find, even um, as their doctor when they're coming in, you know, um, you come into me and you're intoxicated or you're high or like, it's a very difficult balance to find. Um, and even if you wanted to say, hey, I'm the person who I cannot do for you or help you until you hit that rock bottom and you completely change. I don't think that that makes you a bad person. Um because sometimes self-protection and protection of family um, is also important. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it does, actually. Thank you. Okay. Um, someone that's addicted to weed has gone to different rehab centers in Nigeria, much no avail. Best of his slides, do you have any recommendations on what can be done? Advice will be appreciated. Okay. Um, weed and cannabis, definitely one of the ones as well that I think is... Uh, very problematic and very hard to uh, recover from. Parts of the reasons for that is because society thinks that it's fine. It's a plant. It won't hurt you. And that's kind of the messaging I think we get from the people who are like wanting this to be legal, et cetera. Uh, However, the weed that is on the market and that people smoke now is very different from weed that was on the market and people smoked 20, 30 years ago in terms of its potencies. Um, And so it's causing a lot more. Behavioral changes, it's causing a lot more cognitive, like brain thinking, developmental changes, especially as people are getting um, exposed to it earlier and earlier. So it sounds like that person who is related to you with having gone through different treatments before, right? I think that this is the person that if I'm their doctor, I sit down with them and I say, okay, what do you want to do? Because if not stopping their use is what they want right now, then in some ways we kind of have to respect that, right? And if they say, I don't wanna quit, that's it. I don't wanna quit. Then you build what you're gonna do based on that, right? How much can you tolerate? How much can you not tolerate? And then you make it clear to the person, okay, when you want to quit, these are the ways that I will be able to help you. And it takes a lot because usually that's our family and you don't want to see your family fail. Um, But sometimes with severity of addiction, That consequences, having to experience that consequences sometimes is what, you know, you're going to have, the patient has to do, right? It sounds like if he's been to different rehabs, then people have been very supportive in his life. And I'm sure those different rehabs have been significantly a financial strain in his life or her life, you didn't actually say. Um, So I think that this is the part at which you, you or you and the family, the people who are supporting the addictive person, the person with the use disorder, figure out where your boundaries lie in relation to what they want to do. I know, Liz, that that's really hard. Um, Okay.
0: I think there is another question on the chart. So when you refer to high-risk drinking, I presuppose there is an inherent risk to drinking alcohol because it may lead to an addiction maybe. Is there a consumption threshold that leads to dependency? And what what exactly is that threshold if it exists? I think you kind of touched on that
1: before yes um, for, for um so
0: i think him. maybe one of the things to, to, to touch on again is uh, are the deleterious effects of drinking um what are what are the bad things consumption to that leads to dependent
1: okay so no there is not necessarily a consumption threshold that is universal that leads to dependency because of the fact that most substance use disorders but alcohol in particular is very genetically, um, has a high genetic basis. Like, for example, if I am an alcoholic, if I have an alcohol use disorder, then my kids are have a 50% chance of inheriting those same genes. If I have an alcohol use disorder, then my grandkids have a 30% chance of inheriting those same genes. And that's really high in the medical world. And so a person who is the child of an alcoholic, I mean... You know you're very very high risk and even just like taste one drink two drinks um could really just activate and turn on those genes for you and create a problem right um and there's no way to say okay if i only drink two or if i don't drink liquor i just drink beer we just don't have that genetic profile um to know what if any level of drinking will be safe in a person who's very genetically inclined um but like I kind of talked about earlier, seven seven standard drinks uh, in a week or 14 standard drinks in a week. If you're a guy, that's kind of the baseline at which, you know, if someone tells me that they drink more than that, I kind of pay attention and say, okay, well, um, let's talk a little bit more about um, your drinking behaviors and about what consequences you're having from your drinking.
0: All right. Um, No questions coming through yet, but uh, I was wondering, Oh, there's a question actually. Um, so regarding weed, in my period, there is a gray area between regular recreational use and addiction. How do we distinguish between both, especially when there are no apparent behavioral changes?
1: So you're looking at um, consequences of use for that person when you're straying into the addiction part of it, right? And again, addiction can be mild, moderate, and severe, right? I think when we think addiction in our brains, we're definitely thinking of the people who are severe at all times. They have no job, they're a bomb, they are really sick from it. We're thinking of that, right? But your person who's in the mild spectrum is probably pretty functional. Um, so distinguishing is related to kind of the amount of consequences that the person has developed from it. And also um, how their use is negatively affecting their life and they keep doing it anyways, right? Also, someone who is smoking weed right um let's say this person is 21 23 and they're kind of just doing it all day every day they can't hold down a job or they won't hold down a job and their parents literally say well you can't live here anymore unless you don't smoke weed and they're like well i have to and they accept that, that big negative consequence right they say is still not as bad as not smoking weed that's where you're like Great. So your frontal lobe here, where you evaluate what negative consequences are and how much um, significance you give that into your life, is clearly broken, and that's where you have an addiction or a severe use disorder. Um, so it's it's looking at the the consequences and how that person interprets those consequences, what their behaviors are.
0: What right. are the bad things that can happen when someone is? Um, I mean, organically, um, so with different organs that can happen when someone is. Um, addicted to alcohol and um, nicotine. Okay.
1: So we can go through kind of a couple of different substances. We could start with alcohol. Um, Alcohol, biggest one, biggest one, liver disease, right? Your liver is the organ that processes alcohol. It helps break it down. If our body could not break down alcohol, it would reject it. It makes you sick. And that's actually the way that one of the medications we use to help someone not drink works. Um, And so you drink alcohol and it gets processed through the liver. In the processing through the liver, when you have alcohol being ingested kind of, you know, every single day, large amounts, those sorts of things, the liver is actually getting injured in the processing of the alcohol and eventually over years can get scarred. Again, genetically, you will find some people who have been drinking every day for 40 years and their liver is holding out. But then you will also find people who have been drinking a couple times a week for two years and their liver is failing. We don't have a good way of how to predict this. Um, So liver disease is the biggest, biggest one. Depending on the stage of your liver injury, um, it can be reversed somewhat. The liver is one of my favorite organs because it's a little bit regenerative. Um, And also, you know, the liver can get a lot of hits, you know, before it actually fails like you can get it down to like 10 20 percent of functioning liver before it actually fails and that's a really remarkable thing however other things happen kind of way before that alcohol consumption weight people put on weight they put on very central um, around your stomach kind of area type of weight and because you when you drink alcohol you're consuming so much calories that your body doesn't feel like you're hungry and so generally your nutrition and other areas comes way down so like proteins those sorts of things um and so you kind of lose weight and you've got this you know the typical beer belly right um, and so from a nutritional standpoint you're usually very debilitated and but you are you do have a lot of weight on you uh and alcohol raises your blood pressure and chronically elevated blood pressure has effects that span through the years heart disease kidney disease eye disease when you have chronically elevated blood pressure um, and so those are kind of the big ones. You also have, uh, the last one would be brain. Your alcohol is one of the ones the fastest. And it's not just a turning off of your frontal lobe. It's also a degeneration of different parts of the brain. And so after a while, you will actually not be able to form memories like going forward. And you will lose a lot of the memories that you, um you will lose a lot of the memories that you have made and you start becoming demented um, from your alcohol consumption. Uh, So that's alcohol. Talk about nicotine. Nicotine, again, high blood pressure. That's a big one. Um, But the biggest organ affected is, of course, the lungs. You're breathing in the components, not just the nicotine, but the other components of your cigarette or your feet that um, injure the lungs. Just the act of like breathing in something all of the time, caustic air can be injurious to uh, the alveolar tissue. So you could see that in like people who, you know, like burn pit injuries from like the military or people who work in factories where there's just, you know, it's not nicotine in the air, but it's just smoky and it's 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 contaminated air also have long-term liver dysfunction. Um, so nicotine is, I mean, smoking cigarettes, the lungs are your primary, uh, primary organ that is negatively affected um but then as i said high blood pressure and all the things that come along with that and then cancer um cigarettes are associated with like 16 different cancers so it's not just lung cancer uh, that you got to be worried about it's your blood cancers too um so brain cancer like it, there are enough association with 16 different cancers that um mm-hmm. is associated with cigarette use if you are talking about things like cocaine, for example, cocaine is very much cardiovascular, so heart, blood pressure goes up and blood pressure spikes really, really, really high. And so people come in with heart attacks all the time related to their cocaine use. You can have strokes related to their cocaine use, um, again, long-term hypertension, because of that leading to renal failure, eye failure, those sorts of things, um, so very much like cardiovascular when it comes to cocaine. Uh, oh, yeah, aside from the fact that you can die on them super easy or Gentler to the body for a longer period of time. Um, mostly I think you get uh you get some bone stuff like bone demineralization and weakness things. Um, but a lot of it, a fair amount of it from opioids comes from how you use it. And so people who end up injecting a lot, um, can get different infections, blood infections, HIV, hepatitis C or A or not a hepatitis C or B, um, and. Uh, Bacterial infections that go to your bones, or that go to your heart, or that go to your brain, et cetera. Uh, Those are kind of your big ones. If you have a particular, other particular, like a substance you want to hear about, I can, you could just ask. Tom, I see a hand. Uh, Okay, so, uh, yeah. Hi. Thanks, Dr. Kelsey. Um, This is very educative. So, I was just going to ask, for those that, with respect to alcohol, right? So, for those that quit alcohol, um, probably um, might have in some way damaged their internal organs, right? What are the corrective processes? Like, will they have to live with the effects or will the internal organs, like you said, you mentioned the liver regenerates, right? But for other organs that might have been damaged to an extent, probably the kidneys, is there like anything corrective that might um, take it back to optimal performance? Uh, Unlikely. Uh, Even when I say the liver regenerates, it's a very slow thing. For most of the bodily injury that you get from your substances or even just you know, having a chronic illness, um, the goal is really to hold it in place as much as possible. And so if you have liver injury already from your alcohol use, uh, just stop. You want to not offend the liver again. So don't drink alcohol, one, but then also like getting vaccines against viruses that can affect the liver, um, making sure that any medications that your doctors start you on um, aren't injurious to the liver on top of that. It's mostly just a holding pattern, right? Though the liver, yes, has some regenerative capacity, but like other organs pretty much don't. Like um, if you have the neurological changes from um, extensive alcohol use and you're going into that uh, running key syndrome, that, that dementia type syndrome, I can't stop that. You're already there. I can't reverse it. If your kidneys are shot and the kidneys are pretty wimpy organs, we can kind of hold them there um, by changing our lifestyle and using medications, et cetera. But I can't really reverse that either. Um, and that's part of why, you know, substance use is so bad because you injure so much of your body. And then, well, you're stuck. I see that someone asked about safe consumption levels. Um There is no recommended safe consumption level of alcohol. No, zero. Uh, that's, that's a risk benefit talk that you gotta have with yourself. Um, and then are there actual benefits of alcohol consumption of any kind? Yes, there are. Um, it's difficult to evaluate, uh, the strength of those benefits and it's difficult to evaluate exactly which types of alcohol, um, and how much of those types benefit uh, benefit us but when it comes to um, like wine in particular um, but we're kind of finding you know alcohol in general there are some cardiovascular and anti-inflammatory benefits to it that's not a lie it's just that because we there are so many confounding factors in all of those studies right so like for example the one that is like the oldest and kind of the most written well-known is like, okay, well, one glass of red wine with dinner every night cuts your risk for having a heart attack. Um, but kind of when you dig down into that study, right? Yes, those people were drinking one glass of red wine every night. Cool. But they were also on low-salt, low-carbohydrate diets just because of how their culture was, right? And so that's a huge thing that also plays into um, heart attack risk. Um, And so there's a lot of confounding things in some of the studies, but I think that it has been repeated enough that cardiovascularly, um, we can say that there is some benefit. It's just that because we don't have enough information yet about knowing exactly like w- which type of alcohol, how much of that type of alcohol, how much of that alcohol type of alcohol in who, like uh, from a female male perspective, from a race perspective, from a person's history perspective, like do your parents or grandparents have trouble with alcohol? We don't have all of that information yet, and so um, there's no like recommendation to say like okay, well if you have one glass of wine a night then. That's something that I can write out for you in a prescription.
0: Okay. And are there any treatments available for these addictions?
1: Yes. So for alcohol use disorders, we have medications that can help us to not drink. So the, some of the compulsion comes from when I drink alcohol in my body, my body creates all of these happy, wonderful chemicals that feed back to my brain. And I like it and it feels good and I need more. So I drink more. And we have medications that go. So hang on. I missed a step. Happy chemicals on the brain from the alcohol. I like it. I feel good. I want them there all the time. So I'm drinking all the time, right? If I stop drinking, then the parts of my brain where those chemicals were sitting down are now empty and my brain is mad about it. And so everything that I think about is it's about alcohol. Craving. Um That yeah. causes us to relapse really fast when we just can't stop thinking about alcohol. You're craving it. So we have medications that take the place of those happy chemicals on the brain. And so the brain feels full again and shuts up all of those cravings so you can go through life not thinking that a drink is going to make everything better we also have medications like i talked about before that stops the body from breaking down alcohol and so every time you take a drink you get really sick on it now if you think of your children if you have children if you tell them don't touch that hot stove and then they're like you don't know anything and they touch the stove it burns it's a bad consequence and they're never going to do that again and so the body learns the same with alcohol. Oh, when i I take this, I drink alcohol and I feel sick on it all the time. And so you start to disassociate alcohol as being a fun thing and that uh, lessons are drinking. With regards to um like weed, for example, I know we talked about that a lot. I think weed is a very tricky one and a little bit left up to, you know, people like me. There is no official medication that helps us to not use cannabis, however. Um, some substance use treatment centers will use uh, medication versions of cannabis that are also used in people who um, you know, have cancer diagnoses to help them eat and gain weight and those sorts of things and come up with a structure where so we replace the weed with those medications for a bit. And this is usually in the setting of like big behavioral um, therapy services. And so we replace that for a bit and then drop the person down off of it in order to get them off of weeds. But that is not... FDA approved, that is very off-label. Um, and so you're not necessarily going to find everybody who's going to do that. So yeah, so that's weed. That's definitely off-label, but it exists. Um, and then for opioids, we've got medications like naltrexone and buprenorphine and methadone that we replace um, the opioids with. And then for cocaine and meth, those are also ones that I don't really have. FDA approved medications, but there are different things that we try. Sometimes with good effect, sometimes with not. Um, to try to help support the person. The reasoning behind using medications is that when your brain becomes dependent on something, then it changes the levels of chemicals that your brain produces, right? And we need those chemicals to function, to be able to concentrate, to be able to sleep, to be able to be happy, those sorts of things. And so if your brain has kind of turned off those chemicals because the substance has been giving it all, the, you know, forcing those chemicals all the time, then when you stop the substance, you kind of suffer a lot. And so if we can replace the substance for you with something safer um, and then slowly bring you down off of it so that your brain kind of kicks back in and starts producing those levels of chemicals again that's really how um, your treatment is going to work from a medicine standpoint would you recommend total abstinence or um, are there moderate consumption levels depends on the severity But the majority of people, yes, total abstinence is um, the recommendation. I tell people, again, it depends on their severity, but mostly I tell people, if you totally are abstinent for about six months to a year, and then you can reassess. Why do we say six months to a year? It's because when we put people in MRIs and we look at their brain, we know that that's about how much time it takes um, for the frontal processes to kind of come back online and be functioning in a similar fashion to they were before you developed a problem. Um, And so that's why... Uh, about that time frame would be at least your initial recommended total period of abstinence. Some people try drinking again after that and then again develop a problem. Some people try drinking again after that and are able to stay at moderate levels of drinking or normal drinking, as we would say. Um, but again, we don't yet have the science that is able to tell us which one is going to be right for you.
0: Okay, I have a question here. Um It says, um, so for someone like me who is a chronic smoker, what advice um, um, can I get to be able to quit smoking, putting in consideration that I'm a social person, very outgoing, so avoiding smokers or
1: areas like the pub
0: and bar will be a bit...
1: Okay. I guess the first question to address is, do you want to, right? Before anything, outside of knowing kind of the risks to your body, outside of people in your life that might be complaining, all of that stuff, do you want to stop smoking? Because that kind of changes how we approach it, right? If the answer is no, is yes, then I think you go aggressive. You pick, if the answer is yes, I want to stop smoking completely, you go aggressive, you pick a quick date that you can stick to, right? Something realistic that you can say, this is my last cigarette or this is my last. Um, if you use like a vape or something, this is the last one. And then you talk to your doctor and you say, hey, how can you help me? Uh, with medications to um, get over the withdrawals and the cravings, right? And so that looks like pill medications like Chantix, Vireniclin, Deporchion, um, or it looks like replacing and using those um, nicotine patches or gums or lozenges or nasal sprays, et cetera. And then, like I said, with those things, then you taper those down over a period of time and your body is okay, right? Talking to a counselor about The circumstances in which you smoke as well can be helpful in identifying, Okay, you know, maybe it's this person, maybe it's this specific bar. Um, And so it's not that you have to change your entirety of your social life, but you can leave off the most high risk things um, when it comes to how and when you smoke. If the answer is, no, I don't think I want to completely quit and I think I just want to decrease um, my level of consumption, then you're looking a little bit more, not so much at the pill medications, but a little bit more maybe at your, you know, your nicotine gums or loss engines, kind of the shorter acting ones. So you're not kind of going into... um, withdrawals when you cut back on how much cigarettes that you use. If you do use cigarettes, then you're potentially looking at, okay, how many cigarette packs am I smoking and can I switch to vaping? Because then you have slightly less carcinogenic toxins in a vape. As long as you um, make sure that when you switch to vaping, you're not actually switching to more nicotine. If you are already vaping, you can say, okay, I'm going to take myself down. I'm going to take myself around 7% to 5% or from 5% to 3%, etc and kind of come up with a plan on how you taper. So I do think that um, and the biggest question, the first question would be what your goal is as a chronic smoker, and then deciding on how medications and how counseling can support you from there.
0: The, the other thing I wanted to bring up is um, the things that happen when people withdraw from alcohol, so that if it's happening, that we recognize it. Um, maybe it's happening to someone we know and we act upon it fast because some of those things could be life-threatening.
1: Yes, Um, that's very true. Out of all the substances, alcohol and benzodiazepines, so like Xanax's, Clonopin's, Valium's, that kind of thing, those are the ones that can kill you. Um, And so what you go through with regards to alcohol depends on a lot on how much you're drinking and how long you've been drinking at that rate, right? So kind of a hard and fast rule is if a person has been drinking more than two, three drinks, two, three standard drinks for two weeks, straight they're going to have a withdrawal syndrome um and you're going to start that the withdrawal syndrome can start about six hours ish from their last drink um kind of starts off with anxiousness irritability um headache and as you get into kind of like 24 hours person can be sweaty their heart rate is going to be up they can be nauseous and um kind of around that 36 48 hour mark they start getting tremors like this Some people can get tremors really early. So if you're drinking a gallon of vodka a day, in six hours, you'll be tremoring. At that like 48-hour mark, you can also start to get hallucinations. So a lot of times people tell me that kind of looks like lights and kind of waviness in their environment. But you do have full-on ones where people see animals, feel things on their skin, those sorts of things. If someone is there hallucinating, um, that's definitely like they should go to the hospital right now. The next step up from that is um, them having a fever that's very high, blood pressure that's very high, that puts them at risk for cardiac events or stroke and seizures. Um, and all of those things together uh, is delirium, delirium tremens, and that can be deadly. So that that's a span that you will see from around six hours to around uh, three, four days out um, in your withdrawal syndrome. Now again, depending on how much you've been drinking and how long you've been drinking, you really might just stay in that very—you know—I'm a little anxious, maybe I'm a little shaky, I'm irritated, and you feel, experience that for a few days and you're done. But it does depend on their intake.
0: And most of these people need to be cared for in, as a, as inpatients, so yeah, in, in a medical facility.
1: Yeah, definitely talk to your doctor about it. If you if you drink every day, talk to your doctor about it before you stop, um, because. There are medications we can use to, like, give you at home so that you don't die at home and you can stay in your house. But then making sure that your doctor knows you and knows what are the things are going on with you and so might have to say, hey, okay, it's great that you want to stop. Now is a good time for us to check you into a hospital for a few days um, and make sure that your body goes through this safely.
0: Okay. So I guess the take home there is if you drink a lot, um, don't just stop cold turkey. Um,
1: Every day for like, two weeks. and that's where you are, don't stop cold
0: turkey. Um. And, okay, so that's alcohol, that's nicotine. How about the behavioral addiction, gambling, sex?
1: Um... Hang on, we have one question. If alcohol poses such intense health risks as suggested, yes, then why is it legally available and easily distributed? Because money talks. really <laughs> yeah. yeah, people who, like, even at the time it was, like, prohibition and stuff, people who had money wanted to drink. So, it's legal that it's... I don't know that we have a better answer than that. Why is nicotine legal? It's terrible. It's terrible. And tobacco and nicotine, it's, it's not great. But again, somebody at the time who had money, who smoked decided eh, this will be fine. And with those things, I think, I do think that we are potentially within the next I don't know, 50 to a hundred years, moving to a society where people continue to have more access to information and can have reasonable and rational conversations. Um, and decide for themselves to use any substance. Yes, somebody said legal, but it's also a choice. Yeah, like, and I mean that from alcohol straight up through like meth and heroin. You know, um, because kind of on a one to one level, are you the harm that you're doing to your body? Alcohol versus heroin are are kind of similar. One's maybe a little bit faster than the other. They're both big harmful things. Um, and some of the reasons why some things are illegal are so caught up in just injustice, you know, and not necessarily actual health risk. Um so yeah, money, money, money is why it's legal.
0: Huh? I suppose the other argument you could make is that even if you were to make it illegal, there are people who will still get access
1: to. Yeah, it's uh, you know, meth, cocaine, heroin, they're illegal now. And yet we have millions of people, sorry. Um who use it and who have trouble with it, millions. And it's, it's legal, it, I mean, it's illegal, but it's around. Um, and so there's definitely conversation and debate about, okay, what does it mean to decriminalize these things? What does it mean to make these things legal um, in a similar way to the way that alcohol is, right? Like the parts of alcohol that are illegal are when you misuse and you're having a negative effect on society and community, right? So if you assault somebody while you're drunk, right? That's not allowed. You don't drive when you're drunk because you're at risk to the rest of the population. That's not allowed, right? Um, and those things are good to keep order and and keep the larger community safe. But you can decide to drink as much alcohol as you want technically, in your own house. Like, And so bringing that back around to like, okay, if you are using whatever, cocaine, then it's not allowed for that to have an effect on somebody else. But if you know the risk and you understand you just use cocaine in your house, do I really have to punish you for just having it? I don't know. That's a big debate. Um, It it is. Yeah, we as society, I think we are moving towards giving people back the choice when it comes to substances rather than just being so punitive. You see that in a lot of the Western states right now, California and uh, Washington and um, yeah, on that side.
0: And just a little bit about how the community can come together and help people with addictions uh, like you touched upon in California. See, so maybe we have someone here that's helping the um, the government fashion or write our policies for uh, public health safety. And you know, addiction is one of the conversations they're having. Um, what kind of things can we institute in our community to help people with addictions?
1: I think the biggest one is not being, uh, to not stigmatize people, right? Um, like you're not automatically just a bad person just because you're so um. Even if you do smoke it every day, um, you're not a bad person just because you're addicted to alcohol. Like the alcohol has changed your brain and has changed your behavior from what is potentially inherently you, right? And so I think as society, if you think about somebody as like, oh, you're a bad person, um, then we're never going to be able to actually offer help. And then two, also, we are moving towards like a, what we call a harm reduction kind of strategy, which means that you meet the person where they are. If this person is not ready to completely quit yet, but they want to come back. How do I support you in doing that? Um, How do I keep you safe from dying? So how do I keep you safe from overdosing? Or how do I keep you safe from, you know, if you stopped drinking or you didn't have access to alcohol, you don't die from your withdrawal syndrome. How do I keep you safe from death? Because human life has value. And both while it's stigmatizing, we should not not stigmatize, but the harm reduction model in terms of, okay, let me teach this person what is harmful to them. Let me keep them from dying and experiencing, you know, physically bad kind of consequences of this. But at the same time, having that boundary there so that you do keep yourself safe, you do keep your family safe, you do keep your community safe. Because the person's use is going to have a lot of consequences, not just for them, but for families, for friends, et cetera. Um, and so that's, that's really the biggest thing. Yes. Providing education and support, but putting that line, that boundary, that also keeps you as their support and the family and the, the friends safe from those bad consequences of their, of their using.
0: Okay. And then just, um, moving on to, um, something you already touched on, um, social ad- or behavioral addictions. Um, um, I've had questions about gambling, um, sex addiction, um, food addiction, those kind of things. Are there strategies or treatments or things people can do about that?
1: So food addiction is kind of um, it's exciting because I think we have a lot of uh, um, medications that have been coming kind of on stream, particularly related to the centers that um, push for us to eat and crave food. And so not right now, but five to 10 years, I think we'll have a lot of good options for food addiction. Um, but for all your behavioral addictions, you're really looking at, you're looking at Therapy, that's what you're looking at. A person figuring out, okay, what is it that is, you know, contributing to me using this um, or doing this behavior? What do I get out of this behavior? And how can I avoid those things that contribute to me doing this behavior and put a more healthy behavior in the spot where um, I currently have that behavior? So therapy, therapy, therapy for your behavioral addictions. Um, Yeah, therapy, therapy. For gambling addiction, people do use naltrexone. It's a once-daily pill that you can take. There's a little bit of mixed uh, research on it, but it's a very benign pill, so it's not, um, you know, a high risk thing to take. And the thought is, we also use it in alcohol. The thought is that some of the, um, some of the same chemicals that feed back to your brain when you are drinking are some of the same chemicals that feed back to your brain when you're gambling. And so, the same medication tends to have um, some good effect with gambling addiction. Ippie.
0: And there are a couple of questions, um, is denial and mental disorder and hi, Dr. Pierre, can you please touch on the relationship between alcohol and sex addiction?
1: Relationship between alcohol and sex addiction. I actually don't know. I don't think, um, I think that from a neurology standpoint, they have very similar brain centers, right? Like they are very close next to each other those two, but I'm not sure about a relationship otherwise. Uh, Alcohol in general lowers your inhibitions a lot and so can lead you to have more risky behavior, including risky sexual behavior. Um, But I'd, I'd have to find out more about any other kind of linking between alcohol and sex addiction and is denial a mental disorder yeah i don't know maybe not definitionally delusion is though so i i would think that delusion is a very 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 severe form of denial where you're literally blocking out reality and cannot even acknowledge reality but yes um but i think some forms of denial are just people being in denial all
0: right thanks a lot kelsey i don't know if there are any other questions i know we've taken quite a bit of your time today um and um
1: that's okay i was happy to help <laughs> i know. You know my job is is you know it's not i think it's not even very well known you know um some of the information and and yet so many of these things affect all of our families like i've got stuff in my family you know um and so it's it's i'm happy to talk about it and at least give you some information that you could start having conversations with your friends and family or recognizing things with your friends and family
0: Right. um there is another question here. Compulsive sexual behavior, is that the quarantine that specs addiction? Any health risks um, could it be entirely natural?
1: So when you say compulsive, generally anything that is compulsive isn't maladaptive, it's bad, it's diagnosable. Um, and so compulsion that exceeds negative consequences, like health risks, is addiction. Um, but people have high sex drives that they have sex a lot, and that's not compulsive behavior. That's natural. Um, so there's 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 a difference.
0: And then um yeah, it's about associated health risks.
1: Oh well, associated health risks with regards to sex in general. Um, you know, you have your sexually transmitted diseases, chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, all of the ones, HIV. Um, that kind of might be it, actually. Unwanted pregnancy? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um Thank you for listening to me talk for an hour, guys.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Kelsey.